And one thing after the other. What you have is uh, they, they erect the base amigda, the Mishkan rather. After the Mishkan, you have a whole series of historical episodes where the problem with the Slav, the problem with the fires, and then of course you have uh, the Miraglim, Miriam saying Lashnar, the Miraglim. You have the Korach episode. When's all this happening? During the first year, the first year the that the Jews are in, you see, uh, coming out. Therefore, Chukas seems to extend straight out of Korach. You have Korach's mutiny rebellion, all occurring during the first year, year and a half, to be more precise. In fact, Korach could be occurred before the Miraglim even. That's the whole Shaila as to when the rebellion of Korach occurred before the Miraglim episode or afterwards. It's Machlekes in the Mishayim, the says it occurred earlier. Ramban says it occurred afterwards. And um, I'm getting a plague of bugs here. And Chukas uh, <coughs> starts off with another halacha, very, you know, the, the laws of Poraduma. Right after you finish the laws of Poraduma, right after the, the, the halachas of Poraduma, it says, Vayovo v'nei Yisrael kol ho'edo midbar tzin b'chodesh ha'rishon. And the congregation comes to Midbar Tzin. In other words, if you're really following the reading of the, of the parashiyas, what you really have is you have Chumash Vayikra, which really is full of a bunch of halachas rather than of historical events. You start off by Midbar, where they change over from the Levim to the Bechorm to Levim. You finally have the Hakomas HaMishkan in Parashas Naso. They erected the, Besa, the Mishkan. This is all occurring about a year and a half after they came out of Mitzrayim. Then it says the Jews start going on their journey. They go on their journey, Kivus HaTaiva, Tavero, all these places where all of these things happen. Finally they get to uh, Kodesh Barnea, they send out the Miragun, all happening within the first year, year and a half of coming out of the um, of Mitzrayim. Rebellion of Korach, Law of Poraduma, and then it says, Vayavov Midbar And the congregation comes to Midbar Tzin. If you follow the reading, it's just one thing after the other. Of course, the key over here is Kol Ha'eda. Rashi right away tells us. Fast forward to 39 years later. This is the last year. I mean, it's quite obvious because what you have over here is you have Misas Miriam. In the last year, in the 40th year, they have Miriam dies in um, Nisan, Aaron dies in Av, Moshe dies in Avar. So this is all happening last year. As a matter of fact, this parsha extends from Nisan of the last year through the death of Aaron, which would be of. It means the last, a half a year goes by in this parsha over here. But it's the last year. It, it, it's really incredible when you try reading it, then so it tells you that, some, that this, this is a whole different generation. You're talking about an entirely new generation of people, an entirely new generation of Jews. It almost sounds like you're dealing with the same Jews. Yeah, the same problem. They're hungry. They want to go back to Egypt. I mean, it's a pebble when you think about it. For 39 years, nothing happened. All of a sudden, they start murmuring and grumbling again, the same way as all the other things that we've been learning in Parshas Baloscha and Shlach and Korach. It's the same kind of thing. But there's a pause. There's a 39-year break. So like in the tape recorder, you know, you could stop in the middle and you come back a year later, and on the tape it looks like it's just an extension, and we didn't even take a break. Yeah, you, you don't <laughs> like you know, you listen to the tape, you don't realize that we just took a 10-minute break. Because that's what happens. That's what happens on the tape. You put it on pause, but that's what happens over here. There's a 39-year pause. What's even more of a pella, although we're not going to talk about it, is the fact of what happened during those 39 years. There's nothing. There's no Torah being given. There's no events happening. 
Hashem doesn't speak to anybody? There's nothing that's worthy of being inserted in the Torah during those 39 years? The answer is there wasn't. Nothing happened to the Jewish people except the first year and the 40th year. It's a big power when you think about it. Nothing worthy of being mentioned in the Torah or in general happened to the Jews other than the first and the last year. Everything in the Torah that we have in Hamishay Chumshay Torah all occurred during the first, when I say first year, it's really a year and a half, but it's the first year and the last year. When you realize that, and the first year, of course, is one generation, the last year is the next generation. Nothing happened in between. As a matter of fact, even Moshe Rabbeinu says the Gemara was a little bit on, uh, on a tilt. Because the Jewish people were benezifa, the Jewish people were, were away, uh, in a sense, excommunicated from Hashem, the Shechino didn't communicate with Moshe the same way either. He was also didn't have the same prophecies. All of a sudden, the 40th year, everything resumes, you have a new generation. So you have to bear that in mind. Because once you realize that, you could now start trying to understand Satako, what happened? Also, you have a whole new generation and they start making a replay of all of the complaints that we're familiar with the first time. I mean, if you read it normally and you consider them the same people, you say, oh yeah, this is consistent with what the Jews have always been doing. They're always complaining. They're complaining about the food, about the water, about the man. All of a sudden, 39 years, no complaints. And now they start complaining about the man again. And the water, and they want to go back to Mitzrayim. What happened? But the reason why I'm pointing this out is because we have to realize that we cannot res- we cannot analyze what's happening over here without realizing that we're dealing with a whole new generation and a whole new situation 40 years later. It's not just that they're complaining about the month again. In fact, now this automatically brings us to a whole new problem. If that's the case, what type of happened now? All of a sudden they start complaining again. Why do they start complaining about the month? They've been eating it for 40 years. They're complaining about the month. We have to understand what's going on over here. So let's, for now, skip over the chait of Moshe Rabbeinu. We dealt a little bit with it last year. And let's go to answer some of this question. We'll go back with it. We'll work backwards. We'll see how much time we have. This is also a little... In, in, general, in general, we have to realize that the Torah usually points out bad things. When things are good, you know, it's, it's like the newspapers. No news is good news, right? Or the reverse being, good news is no news. Right? Man bites dog, makes news. Dog bites man, makes no news. If for 39 years, Jews were, Jews were sitting and learning Torah and just acting and doing and nothing major happened. No new Torah is being given. No new Averas are being done. So just not reported. We're only pointing out lessons for the future, which of course tells us another thing about the Torah, which we've said on many occasions, that the Torah is not a history book. The Torah is not trying to give us chronological history so that we should know exactly and analyze it. It's not a scholarly discipline. If anything, it would be more compared to a Musr book than to a history book. The word Torah, of course, means teaching and guidance. The Torah is to give us guidance. Therefore, if there's nothing to be learned from those 39 years, we don't do it. We don't, it's not really discussed, just to inform us. It's not to be informative, it's to, it's to teach. So now we have to learn talk of the lessons that, they're, that it's trying mm-hmm. to teach us. But you have to know about this particular bit of information. Okay, let's go in here. It says, Vayisu mehor hohor. They left horror. that means after Aaron died. Now you have to also remember an interesting factor over here. That This also we have in Pasha's Chukas. Miriam's dying, that means the old generation's leadership is dying. When Miriam dies, the Be'er goes away. Chazal tell us that the Be'er went away and it came back in the merit of Moshe and Aaron alone. Aaron dies, the Anani HaKovot go away. As a result, they have 
this war with uh, with Canaan. They, the Canaanites think, oh, the protective coating around the Jews is off, and therefore now he can attack. And the Ananiya covered resume in the merit of Moshe alone. So now Moshe is carrying the entire weight over him. In other words, in his merit now alone is the the heir as well as the Ananiya covered, and of course the man is the final is the final gift given to the Jewish people, and that was in the merit of Moshe Rabbeinu. And now the Jews start complaining about the man again. Now, after the death of Aaron, they re- leave Horahor, to circle around Edom. And the people become very agitated. Um, means that they become burdened, and they feel like, when you're short of breath, like you're tired and you're you're weary. You're weary. Why were they weary? Why were they weary? The reason why they were weary is because they were expecting to enter Eretz Yisrael and all of a sudden they started moving backwards again to go all the way around. And at this point they start getting a little bit frustrated. also means they reach the level of frustration. You see, again, without knowing this new bit of information that we're dealing with a whole different generation, it sounds very repetitious. Why did you take us out of Egypt? Like two years into the desert. This is 40 years later. New generation. And they're saying, why did you take us out of Egypt that we should die in the desert? Ki ain lechem. The ain mayim. We don't have normal bread. We don't have any normal water. And all, and our souls are disgusted. Kotza, by the way, and Kotza are very similar. The Mephorshim explained, because we're weary. We're, we're, sick of, we're sick of the month. Sick of the man, you're talking about a generation that didn't need anything else. They never ate anything else. They were only brought up on man. So what's going on over here? See, again, without knowing that we're dealing with a whole new generation, it sounds like the old thing, but, but it's a different complaint. You're talking about a new generation of kids that never saw an apple in their life. Yeah, they're, 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 the truth is, maybe now it could be it's a good terrorist. Because the old generation that have seen apples and have tasted all the food, all they have to do is wish, I want an apple. And the one tastes like an apple. What are the new generation saying? Them. What's it supposed to taste like to them? It's to taste the same taste. Yeah. I'm not talking about what Norman said. But it could be at this point, they started, hey, we're getting the same taste. There's no variety over here. The other ones at least had some variety. But to them, you know, it's interesting. Maybe once already the old generation died out, so they weren't even able to imagine anything anymore. So they start complaining. We're sick and tired of this lechem ha-klokel. That's that the, the colloquial means part. Yeah, you're right. The word comes from kal kal. Now kilkul, of course, means a a what? A this well a a bread that's um, damaged, deficient bread, a spoiled bread. Colloquial, right? But um, the Chazal also seen it kal kal, very light. It was a spiritualized substance which um, caused them that when they would eat it. It would, it would give them the nutrition that they need, but there would be no, there would be no waste product. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have any uh, excrement from the month. You know what it's like. Let's take another comparison. Could you imagine if you're in a space program, and they give you uh, those concentrated foods? You know, now you're getting the nutrition of a steak, and you, know, you take out a pill and you eat it, and you got your steak inside of you, and you don't go to any bathroom. And each day you sit down to uh, a little vitamin pill over there, and salt and eat a little vitamin pill. Okay, what are we having for lunch today? Oh, for lunch we're having vitamin pills, you know, uh, protein and supplements and all this kind of stuff. 
So the truth that that's cow cow, cow that they're you can't sink your teeth into something juicy. You know you want to be able to eat and have a little bit of uh, roughage and bran and you know and have to go to the bathroom. That's really what it boils down to. That they want they wanted that they wanted the waste product. They didn't want to just eat food that's so that's so divine and spiritual lechem abirim as it's called the bread of the angels that's semi-spiritual, gives them nutrition, they wanted to sink their teeth into a juicy, rare steak. So it's not only a question of taste, it's a question of, of consistency and, and the way it looks. But why now? Well, let's finish up the story, though. Because another unusual feature over here. Vayishalach Hashem bo'omes hanuchoshem hasrofen. Hashem sends against the Jews these biting serpents that are poisonous. Srofen, of course, is because you get a fever from snakes, right? We all know what Neshach is. By Nashru Esoam, they bit the people. Neshach, like interest, you know, two percent, and then it like just blows up out of you, and you find yourself. Uh, uh, this is the first uh, what they call the mushroom. Um, what's it called? Oh, no, no, talking about mortgage, mortgage, mortgage. Balloon mortgage, yeah. So like balloons out of you, like comes last year and you can't afford it anymore. That's what snake bites are. That's why it's called Neshach. Balloon mortgage, okay. Vayinashchu esoam, vayomos amrov mitzvah. A lot of Jews died on this. Vayovom el Moshe vayomu chotanu ki dibarnu b'ashem vavoch. The Jews now are doing tshuva. Apparently they had a double sin. They spoke Lashon Hara against God with Amon and against Moshe. Why against Moshe? Could be because Moshe is the one that was the responsible for the Amon. As we see, all the protective coatings are off. So they asked Moshe, Hispalel Hashem, Daven to Hashem, In other words, they're used to the idea that Moshe Rabbeinu intercedes. As we've seen the other, uh, in Wednesday night, Vayichal Moshe, that it's as if God takes an oath, and Moshe is the one that revokes the oath. Right? So they're asking again, Moshe, intercede like you did with the miracle, like you did with the eagle. You gotta do it again. So Moshe Daven's Ba'adoam. All of a sudden, Hashem has a whole different response over here. Rather than say, okay, I forgive them in your merit, Hashem says, take a serpent, put it on a staff, and everybody that looks at it will live. Moshe makes a nechash nechoshes, play on words, right? Nechash nechoshes, a copper serpent. Nechoshes is copper, and nechosh is serpent. He makes a copper serpent, it's like a name within a name. He places it on a on this, this nace, and whoever looks at it, who's bitten by a serpent, looks at it and he lives. Rather an unusual response. This of course becomes the symbol of the medical profession, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the snakes, I thought it was lawyers. Snakes, yeah. <laughs> that's malpractice, this is what comes from this. But, uh, no, but the, right, that's the symbol of the medical profession where you have that snake coiled around this, the snake. Okay, so, so they live. Why does Hashem give such an unusual response? He wants to forgive them, he doesn't want to... So let's start off. Now, at this point, we're finally ready to start the shir. <laughs> Just need an introduction. Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah, and this is unusual for a Mishnah, because usually most Mishnahis tell you halachas. All of a sudden, here you have a, a Mishnah that digresses into Agarata. Right? Gemara does it all the time, Mishnahis doesn't. Says the mission of Moshe in the battle with Amalek, when Moshe's hands were raised, the Jews were victorious. In fact, the mission of the Chiyod of Shal Moshe, 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 Mo
was it the hands of Moshe that, that caused victory or defeat by having his hands up or down? Elo, loy Marloch, it's telling you a different lesson. Bizman shemistakni so klape maylo umishaven libon lavim shabashamayim. As long as the Jews were looking where the hands of Moshe were pointed, which is heavenward, and they actually subjugated their hearts to their father in heaven, they were victorious. And when Moshe's hands were down, was a symbol and an indication that the Jewish hearts were not directed heavenward. And then they were, were losing the battle. So we all know this, this story from the war with Amalek. In other words, it wasn't Moshe's hands up or down that was responsible for the victory. It was merely symptomatic of what's going on with the Jews. It's like, like any illness that you have. The symptom is the coughing and the sneezing, but there's, there's a virus. It's the same thing. It wasn't Moshe's hands were, were a symptom, and they were a, maybe even a consequence, one can look at it, or a symbol, either way, rather than the cause of victory. Obviously, it could be works in both directions, that when Moshe's hands are up, it inspires the Jews heavenward. Their inspiration inspires Moshe to maintain it. When his hands are down, it's either an indication of the Jews being disillusioned, and then again, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where it causes disillusionment as well. Right? Moshe hands are down, feel a little down, and one goes back to the other. Cause and effect, it's really hard to tell which way it works, but, but the idea, the thrust of it is how the Jews were, were directed. It wasn't Moshe doing it, it was the Jews themselves doing it. And here the Mishnah draws another analogy. Was it the copper serpent that allowed, that caused life and death? The same thing when they looked at the serpent, they had to look heavenward. They had to subjugate their hearts. They were then healed. If not, they died. We all know the famous story of Rebbeinu Ben Dosa when this serpent was uh, going around biting people and they came to him down for us and he does the same thing he puts his foot in the pit the serpent bites him the serpent dies he grabs this grabs the uh, snake and he says it's not the snake that kills it's the sin that kills so, so that seems to be the lesson here what why put up a snake why put up a snake well maybe we'll talk a little bit about it the Ramban has a whole thing over here, very interesting Ramban over here about uh, rabies. He talks about that uh, when you look at it, you know, whatever. It's a very interesting Ramban here. Um, so what caused the Jews... To, so we already have a few problems over here. New generation, they're complaining about the mon. Why? What happened? Secondly, how come Hashem's response is with a brass serpent? Moshe Rabbeinu is down and Hashem says, make a brass serpent. What's going on over here? And also, the, the mission is a rather I strange one. As, yeah, yeah, well, of course, we know that Chizkiah, for that reason, destroyed the, the brass serpent. And, and Chazal gave him a Yashikayah for it because people started worshipping it. It became its own, uh, became its own uh, thing. And uh, it's, the reason, of course, why it's not of Odazar over here is because, first of all, Hashem commanded it, just like the Kruven. Right? The Kruven were also of Odazar. But Hashem commanded it. If you do precisely as Hashem says, that's okay. But that, that, that's in a sense maybe what's bothering, what's bothering the, um, the Mishnah. So what's the Nochash doing over here? But it doesn't really fully answer it. But by Moshe, the problem is the other thing. I mean, why all of a sudden Chazal are asking the question over here? The hands of Moshe did it. They asked the same question by the, by the Yamsuf. 
but the hands of Moshe split the sea. Was it the Ketores that uh, saved the Jews by Aaron? Well, all of a sudden, why is the Mishnah pointing out these two incidents as being, uh, couldn't be the hands of Moshe, and why not? And why is it different than everywhere else? In a way, so what you're saying now is an excellent point. 39 years ago, in the previous generation, we find Moshe constantly interceding. Here, it's no longer Moshe. You're about to enter the land of Eretz Yisrael. You're going to be losing Moshe. You got to do it yourselves. You're going to be on your own. So you got to do it yourselves. Oh, so that would explain why they built the snake already. Because now already what Hashem is saying, you're both making excellent points here. What happens? They, they come and they say, we have sinned on us. They're saying, vidui. It's, it's a very good vidui. They're saying exactly our sin. Our sins, we sinned against you, and we sinned against Hashem. But then they're saying, Hashem, daven to Hashem. Moshe davens on behalf of the people. Hashem says, no, no, it's not Moshe anymore. Now make them a serpent and let them on their own look and realize and learn whatever the lesson they have to learn from the serpent. But the overall point we see from all this is what you're saying over here, which is it's no longer Moshe's intercession. It's you're on your own. Moshe is able to help, Moshe Davins, and, and, and you make the brass serpent. It's certainly not the brass serpent that's going to be doing the healing. That's what the mission already says. Was it the serpent that did it? No. It's themselves. So we could a little bit understand the last half of the mission now. That the, the mission is asking, In effect, it's really saying, it's really saying both parts. It's saying, not does the serpent have power, but what exactly is the whole story? Why did they make a serpent? Teret says, the purpose of all of this is just to inspire the people. They look at the serpent, they see that it's not the serpent that kills, it's sin that kills. That's really what it goes back to. There's a lot more, which we'll have to see, that, that's the lesson of looking at the serpent. But whatever it's supposed to teach you, it's supposed to teach each individual. You look at it, you learn from it, you live. Not Moshe Rabbeinu is coming in and he's abolishing God's oath. Hashem makes an oath, comes Moshe and he nullifies Hashem's oath. It's no longer Moshe nullifying Hashem's oath. It's the people themselves, each individual has to learn from it for himself. New generation. Each individual has to learn for himself that you got to take your own life into your own hands. You did your vidui, but there, Hashem says there still is another atonement. If you look at all the other places, we find just the opposite. Aaron is running in with the Ketoris. That saves the Jews. Vaychal Moshe, that saves the Jews by the eagle. Again by the Miraglin, Moshe prays on their behalf, it saves the Jews. Throughout all these things we find Moshe coming in, the knight in shining armor, the masked man coming to the rescue. Who was that masked man with the silver bullet, right? That's Lone Ranger. Moshe Bain was acting as the Lone Ranger all this time. Now it's no longer. Now already the Jews have to do it themselves. Hashem is saying, you got to make your own serpent. You got to... Why exactly? We'll see. But, but that's really what we see from this. In fact, if that's the case, we can now possibly understand the first part of the Mishnah. What's the first part of the Mishnah? The first part of the Mishnah is the war with Amalek. Did the hands of Moshe do it? Didn't they do it? What's going on over there? So over there we do have somebody that asks the question. It's interesting because on the last half of the Mishnah no one really asks this question. But now that we've learned based on the Pasuk, we could really analyze it and learn from it this particular lesson. Let's see if there's a similar lesson in the first part. If you look in the Harchei Dover, that's the small print. Let me always got to read the fine print. Um, that's the Nitziv. The Nitziv in Parshas B'Shalach does explain it. 
And he also says that there's something very strange and odd about the war with Amalek. What's odd? All of a sudden, Moshe Rabbeinu recedes to the background. Usually, Moshe Rabbeinu does battle. Sichon, Og. Moshe Rabbeinu's in the foreground. He's leading the charge. Here, Moshe Rabbeinu's going in the background, and Yeshua's taking over. Why is that? Why is that? Mm. Th- that's true, but, but why with Amalek? No, what you're saying is correct. And he's saying along those lines. What happens is, if you remember when we learned the lesson of Amalek, the lesson of Amalek is... Is, is more than just denying Hashem. It's being able to see Hashem's hand in nature. Moshe always represented the supernatural. Moshe Rabbeinu represented mir- miraculous powers. If you notice, the war with Amalek has an unusual feature to it. And that's why we find Moshe receding to the background. What's the um, unusual feature? And it's interesting, the, the incident with Amalek happened right after the first episode with the rock giving forth water. And here the Nechash HaNechoshes is happening right after the second incident, 40 years later. Again, we have, we have two incidents where, where rocks give forth water. One in the first year and one in the last year. That's another thing which we still have to get to. So it says over there, Vayob Amolek, Amolek comes to battle. Moshe tells Yeshua, Bechar lonu anoshim, and you go out, and again they had to leave the clouds of glory, just like we're having it over here. You fight with Amalek tomorrow, and the word Mochor is in the future as well. And I'm going to stand on the mountaintop. And Yeshua goes out and does battle. And it says, Yeshua weakened and defeats Amalek by way of sword. In other words, the natural means. Now, here already we can already see the problem that comes in. And Hashem says this is going to be an eternal battle forever. What is this eternal battle? The eternal battle is the one where the Jew has to see the hand of God in nature. It's much easier to believe in Hashem and to see Hashem's workings when it's quite evident, when He's doing miracles. You know, you're sitting back, you're watching the sea split, you're watching rivers turn to blood, and all this kind of stuff. Of course, that's Hashem doing it. But when you got to go out and do battle yourself, that means you have to do it, and you have to have confidence. And not only that, but you also have to have faith that Hashem is doing it. That's a much more difficult task. That's a much more difficult task. Comes in the tziv, and he says like this. Sichon and Og were greater nations than Amalek. And nevertheless, Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't do this kind of, uh, of a way of dealing with them. Moshe Rabbeinu on his own was able to achieve victory in general. He, he performed miracles. In this place, that again, we're not going to go into why, but Hashem determined that the Jews have to fight natural battles. Moshe therefore had to recede from the background because he had to allow the Jews to battle in a manner which is going to take them throughout all of history. We learned a little bit about this once. And therefore, when, even when you're fighting battle and you're having a six-day war and you're defeating all of your enemies, remember that you have to. You still need tefillah. You still got to daven. This is a very important lesson because we still haven't learned this lesson nowadays. That's the whole issue about Yeshiva Bachim in the army. The whole issue is, it, this is the, the crux of the entire issue. What is it? They're saying, hey, 
Our lives are being threatened. You guys got to come and do battle. But you're, you, that means that you're assuming that the only way you're going to achieve victory is by doing battle without realizing, yes, it's important, but you need a two-track system. You have to have dual um, armies, if you will. One that does national battle, one that does spiritual battle. It's a very difficult lesson. You know, if we'd be having miracles, all the Israelis would be sitting back and saying, yes, Davin, Seitilim, and, and we'll have miracles. That's fine. But hey, we got to fight. So what are you guys davening for? Why don't you come and fight with us? That's the most difficult task of all. When you're, because you have to realize it's not your force of arms that's going to do it. That's a, that's a much more difficult lesson. The, the rai is that after 3,000 years, we still haven't learned this lesson. And we know that with Parnassus, it's the same thing. It's a lot easier to see water coming out of rocks, mud coming down from heaven, having all of these miracles happen. That's a very easy way for us to be able to, yeah, no problem, you know. As long as Hashem does miracles, I got to work for a living. And you're telling me to learn also. That's much more difficult. That's much more difficult. I'll be in Kylo, I'll be supported, someone's going to support me. That's not so difficult for a person to... But when you got to work and learn... <laughs> look at look not at you yourselves, but look at everybody else. How many Jews are able to do that? How many Jews are able to set their days up in such a manner where you got to work and learn? Because you need both for Parnassah. It's interesting, the word you know, by Amalek is Tzevi Lochemim Amalek. Go and do battle with Amalek. What is the curse by by um, the Eitz Hadas? It was that um, that the Parnas is going to have to be with a struggle. What is bread? How do you, uh, how do you say bread in Hebrew? Lechem. What does Lechem mean? War. It's a battle. To produce bread is a war. Lechem from Nochama. Say Hilochein in Amalek. Go do battle with Amalek. It's very difficult to do this kind of battle where you got to daven and you got to learn and you got to fight with the force of arms. You got to have yeshiva guys learning. You got to have other people that are doing. Or maybe the Hester program. Let's let's take it out of politics. Let's you know. But at least the Hester program you got to have part battle, part learning. You got to be able to do both. That's the most difficult task of all. And it's the same thing with Parnosa. When you have mom coming down, it's not such a problem. When you have Hashem taking care of you, it's not a problem. The problem is when you got to have the lechem. And if you've got to have, in fact, what's the term that's used over here? The spiritual bread. All of a sudden the Jews are wanting physical bread. We'll see maybe what it really means. Right? The cow cow. Uh, but the exper- what was the curse over there? Hashem says, Hashem says to them, The coats of the Dardar Tatsmiach Loch. Arura, not Through the sweat of your brows, you're going to eat bread. And Hashem is saying, you got to participate at this point. Lechem, it's going to be a struggle. You got to struggle and you got to work hard at making a Parnassah. So, where does Hashem come into the picture? It's very difficult. You read all of this, it's going to, it sounds like it's all you're doing. But we, that's what we're saying. Kosha Parnas Sodom Kriyas Yamsuf. Zivugo Shawadam also. Getting married is like Kriyas Yamsuf. It's also, you got to come to Hashem. It's, it's difficult. But so is Parnasah. It's a Mulchab, it's a real war. Parnas is a war. Getting married is like a war also. I, I, I could just tell them what Ivan Kotler once said about marriage. It's not as good as Bachum think it is. 
but it's not as bad as the married people make it out to be. <laughs> I don't know what you're like yet, it's, it's been become a very common expression by Rosh Hashivas after that. It's not as good as Bokum think it is. But it's not as bad as the married people make it out to be. So, what do we see from all of this? Let's continue now with the words of the Har Dover, the Nitziv. Now we find this battle with Amalek, which is going to be an eternal battle. And if you remember, Amalek harks back to the Nochash HaKadmoni, to the sin of the Eitz Adas. Right? We once talked about that. Hamin Ho'Eitz. Hamin Ho'Eitz is Homon, the, the sin of the Eitz Adas. And that becomes the Amalek, Homon, Minatarim Minayin, Hamin Ho'Eitz. So that becomes the battle with Amalek. Is an eternal battle. So there's a relationship here between... What? Right. I'm saying that the Nochash HaKadmoni was the Eitz Har now became internalized. And Amalek becomes the representation of all of this. So what you have over here is it's the struggle for Parnassus, for Lechem, is also the struggle with Amolek, say, Hilochein Amolek. And in both cases, you need this two-track system, which is very difficult. Therefore, says in the Tziv, for that reason, Moshe Rabbeinu goes to the background. He says, now we can understand this Mishnah. He says, with these words, we can understand the Mishnah here. How come Chazal are only questioning the power of Moshe's hands in this one particular incident? How come we don't question the power of Moshe's hands by Kriyas Yamsuf, by all the other places, where he kills all with his hands, right? Here he takes the, the axe, whatever it is, and he jumps up and he kills all. Why don't we question it over there? Teretz is because only in this place do we find Moshe having to force himself to recede to the background and not do battle with his hand, but that the Jews should themselves do it. <coughs> only here Moshe wants a war with Amalek naturally. Therefore, whenever Moshe was doing it miraculously, the staff is there to do it miraculously. But here it's supposed to be natural. So it's not supposed to be the staff of Moshe doing it. Therefore, Chazal are asking, so what is the staff of Moshe doing over here? And here Moshe is lifting up his hands. So what's going on over here? Did the hands of Moshe do battle? We know that it's not the hands of Moshe that are supposed to be defeating Amalek. It's supposed to be a natural war. Teretz is, say Chazal, that's true. It wasn't Moshe that was doing it. Moshe was just symptomatic of what the Jews were supposed to be doing, namely, that to subjugate your hearts. Moshe only represented that. We could add a little bit to the Nitziv that the hands of Moshe were behind the scenes, just like when a person has to daven and realize that Hashem is acting behind the scenes. When your hearts are confident in Hashem, then miracles are going to happen, naturally. It looks like you're doing the natural war with Amalek, but it's really your feelings behind the scenes. Moshe's hands are up, and therefore that's running the battle naturally. Very difficult to assimilate this. This idea that you have to daven and hands of Moshe, it's miraculous, and it's natural all at the same time. That's why Moshe had a hard time. His hands were up, they were down, they got heavy, he became wary. Because this is a very difficult battle. To rely on miracles is one thing. To rely on yourself, but to do both is very almost impossible. So that's what Chazal are asking. What do the hands of Moshe have to do with anything over here? Was it miraculous? Wasn't it miraculous? Territus it was the Jewish people had to 
fight naturally, but they have to have faith in Hashem and confidence, and then Hashem manipulated from behind the scenes. That's the lesson of the of the Yod of Shemoshe. That's why Chazal are only pointing it out in this particular case. Now we could understand possibly the relationship to the Nechash and the No longer is it Moshe that's going to daven and intercede on behalf of the Jews. That's what we see over here. We see an unusual response from Hashem. They come, they're doing tshuva, they're saying, Moshe, daven for us. Like you did in all the other times. Hashem says, no, no, no. Now already they got to do it themselves. They got to have their own faith. And they have to have the same thing, just like with the Babel Tamolek. You got to look heavenward. And you have to place your heart heavenward, and then you'll be healed. And what are you looking at? The Nochash. Again, we're back to the Nochash, to the original sin. Right? The Amolek, the Nochash, Nochash Hakadmoni. We're back to that again. What? Okay, so now we can understand we have one piece of the puzzle in. What about the other questions? So what was the sin that was going on? What was agitating the Jews that causes the serpents to come and why Dafka serpents biting them? So there's a beautiful Chassam Seifer over here who's mechavin somewhat to the Rebbeinu B'chai. So let's take a look at the Rebbeinu B'chai first. The Jews are complaining about the Mon. Yesh Hallo, Hamon, Yom they had mon every single day. What are they complaining about? Ki ein lechem, vein maim. If you look at their complaint, it's a strange complaint. Forty years they've been living with the with having mon on a daily basis. We know that the first generation had problems with the mon, but they've been living for thirty-nine years with mon. Forty years, really. And they're saying, ki ein lechem, vein maim. We don't have bread, we don't have water, and we're sick and tired of this mon. What became unusual now that the Jews started complaining? That's the Rebbeinu B'chai's kasha, which is the kasha that we, one of the kashas we started with. They were having now the new miracle of water coming from... What are they complaining about water now? They're complaining about water? They're getting water out of Iraq. Why complain about water again? We don't have bread, we don't have water. What are they complaining about? What happened? Says Rebbeinu B'chai, a very important Yisrael. Their complaint was as follows. Amru, hinei inyoneinu mishuna. We're living a very special existence. Ein lanu lechem umayim kishar humus. We're not getting bread and water like everybody else, like all the other nations. Now, you asked the question earlier, they never saw an apple. How do they even know to want an apple? Teretz says, what's been happening this last year? They've been passing through Gaisha lands. They started seeing stuff. As a matter of fact, if you take a look, it says over there that right after, in this 40th year, We came out of Egypt, let us go through your land. We're not going to drink and take anything, we'll buy it all. And um, he says, We'll drink your water, we'll pay for it. Let us pass through. Giving them a living. They're going to give them a living. And we see that throughout, they start having now Sichon and Og. They, saw, uh, they, they started being influenced now by what the visual impact of seeing. Did they eat any of that stuff in their they, they started eating some of the stuff now. That's, that's what happened. That's when they started eating nah. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, that, would, that would go with it. That's all this thing. Hey, we're back to the month. This is crazy stuff. I mean, they're brought up their whole lives like this. 
But all of a sudden, they started tasting taco. What happened? What happened when we we had a barbecue? Remember when we had that barbecue? And it was it was simmering in your mouths for the next half a year. Half a year later, you said, you know what? We're gonna have a Hanukkah party. Let's have that kind of menu, right? What happened? We got the same menu. Didn't taste quite the same. You didn't have that charcoal board broiling. The same ingredients. You asked Trapper, you asked him, I mean, yeah. so what are you talking about? It's the exact same thing. But that Salisbury steak didn't quite look the same as when it's grilled on the grill. Right? You know, take a pizza, put it in a pizza oven, you eat, ah, geschmack a pizza. Take that same pizza and put it in the microwave. <laughs> you put it, same ingredients. It's hot. Cheese is melted. You call this this spoiled bread over here, this, this this mushy bread, it's all nothing, it's mush. Give me a pizza. I gave you pizza. It's not pizza, that's pizza, this is not pizza, right? It starts you start seeing the guy and then you start learning, hey, there's a bunch of stuff you could do out there that we as Jews don't know about. You know, you start reading and watching TV and you get influenced by a lot of what's going on by the guy. And you go, hey, the stuff I got is lechem haklokel. Remember we talked about about women that shave their heads, right? So I said, yeah, it was good maybe in those days. You're living in the, but now already you're living out there and you go into an office and you work and you have secretaries and you have people and you see women walking down the street and you come home to your wife and underneath the shaitel is a, is a skinhead. Lechem haklokel. The bread is the spoiled bread. It's, it's a problem. You're influenced by God, and you have to deal with it differently. You have to deal differently under the occasion, right? That's lechem haklokel. Right? Let's go right there with Beit HaBachai. We got to the Samsoyim. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. We don't have that problem in our circle here. I'm just pointing out, you get the exact same thing. Only a But we now the truth is that uh, it's the same ingredients that it's not the same pizza. Microwave pizza is not the same. You, you take a chicken and you broil it in an oven. You cook it in the microwave. It's a different chicken. Now they have all these kind of microwaves that also have, you know, broiling in order to brown it, in order to look the same, be crunchy the same. You know, go eat potato chips mushed up. You know, it's, it's the same potato chip. It's, it's not. Right? That's right. French fries in the microwave also the same thing. It's soggy. So therefore... But the, that's going to be the Chassam Seifer's approach. Let's first get back to Rebbeinu B'chai. Rebbeinu B'chai says, the Jews are now complaining, hey, we don't live a natural, normal existence. Now we see how going live. They got normal food and normal bread. So he says like this, Kishara Umas. Other nations, Imhoyu Zakoyin Ochayoven, Yeshlam Lechem L'Seifer. They were complaining about the spiritual component. We said lechem haklokel means two things. It's the physical degeneracy of it, and also the fact that it's too spiritualized. He says they were complaining, Rebbein B'chai is taking the spiritual thing. Goyim, they live a, they live like a guy, right? They live like a guy, and they have bread, and they have food. They go home, and they have a gishmak stocked refrigerator, and they go out, and they live the life of a guy, and they come home, and they have good lechem. Right? And they have water, and they don't have to worry about spirituality and bringing it out of rocks and miraculous. 
Hey, we don't need this. We don't need spiritual. But why can't we live the life of a guy? You know, I remember when I was in when I was in Cleveland in Tells. So there was a um, I was in somebody's house on Shabbos, and um, he's bringing up his kids. You know, little person. So he asked this kid, he wanted to show him off to me. He was uh, three years old, four years old. He says, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? He says, I want to be a guy. He says, a guy? Says, you mean like, ah, you don't mean a guy? He says, no, no, like that guy over there. And he looked outside and he sees this hand guy sitting on top of a tractor, a bulldozer, working in construction in the streets. You know, like the grubber, not stamina guy, a grubber guy, the walkers, you know. He's, he's not wearing a shirt, he's not wearing a t-shirt, like, you know, you see the, the, the muscles bulging from his body, the tan body sitting in the sun doing construction, that's what I want to be. You want to be the grubber guy? The Jews are saying, what I want to be, this pale Jew sitting covered up with Anani Yaakov, I don't have any sunshine, and I'm being protected and everything. I want, I want to be out there with life, I want to be able to have some excrement. That's really what it is. I want to be able to go to the bathroom, like the guy live a life with excrement, but have my barbecue, and eat, and this. Hey, how come we're living different? We're living the sheltered life, and we're all turning pale and white, and we don't have any excrement. That part of what Rashi says about what you said. Lechem is that we eat it, and it absorbs, and, and we have to go to the bathroom. That's what they wanted. They wanted the grub kite. What is a grub kite? That's what we call nowadays brand. We call it... Um, fiber. Fiber, right. They wanted fiber. What's fiber? Fiber is waste product. They want fiber. We want to be like the guy. And especially a generation that's brought up sheltered like that wants it even more so. Right? The generation that came out of Egypt, it's a, it's a different problem that these guys are having over here. The generation that came out of Egypt and was doing the construction, they were tanned and they were hale and hardy and everything. They don't want any part of that. This new generation living in a tent, living in this Anane Yaakovo, brought up in a sheltered coal environment, I want to be like that guy over there. That's what they want. They want to be like the guy. They want to. They want excrement. They want to go to the bathroom. They want to be tanned. They don't want to They want to be able to eat and sink their teeth into a juicy steak. They want something else now. So he says, Avul Anu. He says, take a look at the guy. But again, I'm 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 really going a little bit. I'm combining the Chassam Seif with Rebbein Bachar. Rebbein Bachar doesn't quite say as much. Well, the Bein Bechai says, Goyim, whether they sin or they don't sin, they have stock of food. They don't have to worry about, about getting food miraculously. But we're different. Everything, all our lives, everything that we got, our food and our drink, the Inyan Mechudosh has to be strange, miraculous. We don't even have a refrigerator stocked with food, like the guy do. Can you imagine you go home and you open your refrigerator and it's empty? You uh, the first thing you do, you go to sugar, you run out to do a shopping trip and you and you stock up, right? That's what everybody says. You come with a big shopping cart and you stock up your fridge and your pantries and everything else. And and can you imagine these Jews? They went into the land of Sichon and Og, the Amorites. All of a sudden they're walking through the house, they're taking a tour, and this is the kitchen. What's the kitchen? Well, we got a bake, and we got we have an oven. We have an oven. What do you need an oven for? Well, we got a grill. What's an oven? We got a grill. Ooh, it tastes pretty good. And what's that thing over there? It's the ice box. That's the refrigerator. What's in there? And you open it up, and you see all that food there. Wow! 
you mean uh, doesn't spoil every day? No, yeah, spoil every day. I put it in the freezer. I take it out a month later, a year later, and they come back to their to their tents and in their tents. They don't have any kitchen. There's no point in having a kitchen. You know, Jews like to have big kitchens. You ever know the Geisha houses how they're built? Small kitchens. Jews love big. I think we still have the same problem. It's 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 a it's a residual problem we have for three thousand years. Jews love big kitchens. Because they're used to the fact that they didn't have any kitchen. Now they finally got a kitchen. Yeah, big kitchen. Two sinks and refrigerators. Notice when you go to most Gaim, they have like the 18 uh, cubic foot capacity one. You walk into a Jew buys the house, that's, forget, that's, the, that's the spare refrigerator. That's going to be the extra one. You have that huge refrigerator with a huge freezer. You know, you go to Lakewood even. The one thing that everybody has is, is freezers. They all have freezers. They got to stock up the food, you know, for the next six months. Okay, there's a... There's a financial consideration there, it's also cheaper this way, and there's a cautious problem, but the fact is everybody likes to open up that freezer and see it stacked with those steaks over there, and here's the hamburger meat, and here's the chopped meat, and here's the chickens over there, you buy by the case, and you like a stocked refrigerator, that's what the Jews were saying over here. They come and they see the gaim and they see a stocked refrigerator, and they come back to their tents, and they tell their wives, you know, there's no kitchen. We, kitchen, what's a kitchen? So they, don't, they don't know what a kitchen is, they don't have a... They say, hey, Moshe, what do we got this lechem, akolkel, this, this, this stuff that spoils on a daily basis. We can't stock up, and it's spiritual, and we got to worry about whether we're going to do mitzvahs. That's the way we got to eat. Each time we eat, we got to worry about mitzvahs. We want to live like the Goyim. They could stock up, and they have enough food to last them, even if they sin. When the guy sins, the stuff in his refrigerator doesn't disappear. He still has the stock. So you make sure you stock up. And, okay, fine, I sit now, give me six months to do chuva, right? I mean, I don't have to worry about it. I have this stuff frozen in my, in my refrigerator. And um, whether I sin today, my parnosim. You have a bank account. That's really why people want bank accounts also. You figure, so you're not such a good Jew, but you have enough stuff in the bank account that will last you, tie you over for six months. But you imagine it, you always have to worry whether you're on the right madrega, whether you're going to have enough of an income for next month. Right? You know what it's like, Jerry. You always say you don't know about next month. Terrence, if you're doing mitzvahs, yeah. But yeah, it's a pressure. The pressure is, did they bring this on themselves by complaining because they saw all the goods out there? That's or what he's saying. Getting ready to cut off well, okay. Okay, what you're saying is also true. What you're saying, that's, that, 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 there's a truth to that as well. But what, what happened new in the 48th year that they started complaining was both of these factors. Miriam died, Aaron died, their level of existence started becoming more physical, which we'll see about. But besides that, they started now seeing the way the Goyim worked. <coughs> and they want to live like a Goyim. Or what you would call the young Israel Jew who's always trying to walk that narrow line between... Right? That's right. So therefore, let's continue. We don't live like, like the Goyim do, that we have one day's supply of... Uh, that we have each day a supply of food like uh, for the future. They not only have enough food to eat, but they feel zat. They feel content. Why? That we see amongst them. feel good. You open your refrigerator. It's not only what you eat. It's being able to see that you got more to spare. That you got stuff to throw out. That's what makes you feel content. And we, we don't even have more than one day supply. And water. What are they complaining about water now? They have water. What are they complaining about water? Water is the cheapest thing, right? How do we live? 
you turn on the faucet, the water comes out, and you turn on the tub, and you water your lawn. Water is there to waste. Goyim, they can waste water. By us, even water has to come miraculously. You know, we have no water. It has to come out of a rock. It doesn't come out of a tap where there's a reservoir. You know, you know when the New York reservoirs are down 10%, it's a, it already turns into a whole conservation effort over there. Oh, the reservoirs are down 10%, it's a, 20% it becomes an emergency. No percent, zero percent. In a dry reservoir. You imagine you have a tap that's tapped into a rock. You, know, you take a spigot, you take a spigot, and you push it into a rock. That, that's what they lived on. They have to like turn on the spigot, then nothing's coming over there. Our water has to come miraculously. The nations of the world don't live water like that. That's why the Jews were willing to pay for it. The Jews told them, this is, even if we drink from your wells, we'll pay for it, we'll give you good. And all of a sudden they see water. They never saw a swimming pool. I mean, they never saw... You know, ten a reservoir of water. There was a power by them. All of a sudden, Afilu Hamayim, Shein Hefker Lucholaylam. Water is Hefker. Water has no value in halacha. When you have um, certain times that you take, you know, Luchatchila, not by not. But um, if you cook something, you shouldn't cook a. Uh, something in a fleshing pot and eat it with milk but did he have it let's say milk spilled on it let's say you cooked a kugel in the milk in a fleshing pot and milk spilled on it you lot eat it no problem you shouldn't did he have it you do with water the Allah is it's always because water is nothing water has no value if you accidentally cook up water like that you, you spill out the water it's not considered wasteful mine is hefker in the whole world the ain Adam. And you can't live without these things. And we see how precarious our existence is that when Miriam dies, we lost it. We have to live a life that we're always either punished or rewarded, and our entire bread, our parnasa, is dependent on mitzvahs. We live on such an such an unusual, unnatural life. Furthermore, and now they started complaining about the fact that they felt that the bread doesn't, the man doesn't support them the same way that when you sink your teeth into a good Italian bread. You know, they want Italian bread. They don't want man bread. Do you have human beings that eat and don't have to go to the bathroom. This is the sin that they were doing right now. It's a terrible sin. They were complaining about the month, they were complaining about their existence, about the way they lived, about their lifestyle they were complaining. That's a terrible thing. It's the same thing as the kid growing up with his father in Kyle and says, I want to be a guy. I don't mean you want to be a guy. You, don't, you want to go off a bazaar, you want to be a house. No, no, no. I want to go on that tractor and live with the sun beating down on my back. What's the sin exactly? A change of lifestyle. That's, that's, that's sinful. That's a terrible sin. You don't like what you're living. You don't like this kind of lifestyle. You don't like this kind of existence that you have. You want to be out there and live like a guy. Well, maybe you're not going to be violating the affairs. You want to be a guy is ultimately what it boils down to. Kilomailas Dora Midbar. Because the truth is, why were they living with Mon? Because they were on such an exalted status. Show you Kamalach Ashores. They were angelic. 
They had mon, which was chazal kol lechem abir, and spiritual bread, bread of the angels. And the reason why I had to come on a daily basis is to teach him the lesson of faith. That they should be dependent on Hashem. Like the, like the slave is dependent on the master, Hashem wants us to be dependent on him for our daily sustenance. Not for our yearly, annual, you go to the shul once a year and you ask for Parnas and Rosh Hashanah. But daily, that's a tremendously difficult lesson. That's tremendously difficult. That's very much like the Yod of Shemosh, the battle against Amalek. And as we see, Parnasa goes back to the Nochash HaKadmoni. The sin that they're doing over here within the Chash HaNechoshes, within the Choshen, harks back to a similar sin, with to the similar problem with Amalek, that goes back to the Eitz Hadas, to the Nochash HaKadmoni, to the original sin. Vo'inyin hoyolem lahargil nafsham, and now what Jerry says comes into the picture as well. Hashem was starting to reduce their level of spirituality where they have to start living a natural existence. And here's where the agitation starts coming in. It's very difficult to assimilate and to integrate into yourself a physical level of existence with the spiritual component as well. That's very difficult. In this 40th year is when the Jews started being let down now and they had to have a soft landing. It was a gradual landing. The first year, in a sense, Chukas therefore gives us a Pasha with symmetry. The first year is that they had to get out of Mitzrayim. Was Yitzias Mitzrayim, leaving Egypt, leaving what Egypt represents. Now, Chukas is the reverse. It's both the same thing. And they're both going through this transitional stage. One where they're trying to, where they're having withdrawal symptoms, and one where they're having withdrawal symptoms from the methadone. Right? You take methadone to get to, to, to you know, withdraw from drugs, now you got to cure yourself from the methadone. The first year they were getting the money and everything else, and they had to learn the lesson of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and withdraw from the influences of Egypt. Now they have to learn the lesson of entering Canaan, seeing Goyim, living with Goyim, living a natural existence, but like a Jew. And it's the same thing. That's why it's so symmetrical that the same sins of the 40th year and the first year are mamish identical. Amalek, the Chash and is complaining about the man, they wanted meat, the water, Moshe hits the rock, all of these things. The battle with Amalek, the battle with Canaan, the Ananea Kovod, leaving, Yeshua leaving the Ananea Kovod. What's happening the first year, Yeshua leaves the Ananea Kovod. Here, the Ananea Kovod go away, and, um, and Canaan fights them. It's the exact same thing. It's a repetition, but in the exact opposite direction. It's like a tape, like, it reverses itself. It goes in one direction, on the other. But it's side two. It's side two of the same thing. It's in another direction. You have to deal with it differently. Agav, I should point out over here, that's the sin that Moshe Rabbeinu had. The sin of hitting the rock, rather than speaking to the rock, we're not going to have time to go into that now. That's what we talked about last year. I want to be able to do it if we would have had time. Is that Moshe made the mistake of dealing with the Jews in the 40th year the same way that he did in the first year. And the Dibartan also. Now you got to speak to them. You don't always hit them. The child, when it's young, you got to hit. The child who's older, you got to talk to. You can't deal with your 20-year-old kid the same way that you deal with your 5-year-old. You have to talk differently and deal differently with a 20-year-old than with a 5-year-old. Moshe Rabbeinu, you didn't, you didn't do that. You're acting with a new generation. It's a new generation. Kali is a little different now. You got to deal with them differently. 
the Nisoyen of a kid growing up in Kailu is not the same Nisoyen as the father that grew up in, in Scarsdale. And you got to bring up your kids differently. If you're living in, in Skokie, Illinois, or in Scarsdale, New York, and your parents are living however, and you want to join Kailu, you have a different Nisoyen. Now you're going to bring up your kids in May, Sharm, or wherever it's going to be. That's a different Nisoyen. You can't relive your life in your kids. You can't go through that same system. You have your design, the kid has the same. Even though sometimes it looks the same. You have to realize that the background is different. Therefore, that changes the Nisayan. And therefore, that changes the way you're supposed to respond to the Nisayan. You have to respond differently. Continues Rabbeinu B'chai. V'o'inyin hoyo lehem lehargil nafsham b'midas habitochon v'ramudah ba'ashem izbrach. The purpose of all this was that they should learn the lesson of bitochon and hamunah na'kodesh baruchu. And yes, it's true that now they were beginning the downward cycle. They were beginning the process of living natural lives. But it had to be a slow landing and the lesson of Bitochen and Amuna had to be retained. The lesson of the man of 40 years had to be retained even when they go into Eretz and live a natural life. That they're not like Goyim. And therefore one can now appreciate the sin that they have on a multifaceted level. On one level, it was a sin of Lashon Hara. It was a sin of speaking badly. It was a sin with the tongue, with the evil tongue. For that reason, they were punished with the serpent that comes that was the first to initiate the sin of bad talk. sent against them the serpents. So on one level, we see clearly that bad speech, the response to that is the punishment of the Nochosh. But we also see a deeper level of sin over here. One where they rebelled and revolted against the lifestyle. The whole lesson of Amun and Bitochen, which they were supposed to inculcate in themselves, now, they got sick of that already. They were weary of that. They wanted to unburden themselves. This is a terrible sin. When a child says, I want to grow up and be that guy, he doesn't mean he wants to necessarily sin, he wants to eat treif. But that same child growing up in the coil that looks at that burly foreman of that construction worker and says, that's what I want to be like. What he's doing is, he's saying, I'm unhappy with the sheltered, pale lifestyle of the Eden coil. I want to live like a guy. I want a different lifestyle. It doesn't mean I want to eat treif, I want to be Michal Shabbos, I want to violate the Tayyag I'll keep the Tayyag that's what I want to look like. That's what I yearn for. That's what I want to become. That's a terrible sin. Because you're rebelling against the whole lifestyle that HaKadosh Baruch was teaching you. You're rebelling against the Kailu lifestyle. It's a different Nisoyen. It's a different kind of Naver. It's a different sin. Continues Rebbeinu B'chai Zer Shekosov V'ayishlach Hashem B'omes HaNachoshim Hasrofim V'dor Shurazal Yovay Nocha Sh'oichel Minen Harbei V'kulam B'fiv Tam Echod let the Nochosh come, who the punishment of the Nochosh was that whatever it eats, whatever it tastes, it's all the same. It all has the same flavor to it. Whatever it eats, he's never satisfied. He's never satiated. The Nochosh HaKadmoini that begins the sin by telling Odom and Chava, by telling Chava, eat from the Eitz Hadas, you're not happy, you're not satisfed. The sin of Homon Hamin Ho'eitz 
that always wants more and more and never feels satiation. The punishment of the Nachosh was whatever you're going to taste is going to taste the same. It's going to look good, it's going to look better, but when you finally taste it, ugh, it's garnished, it's dirt. That's the punishment of the Nachosh. You have a soul that's unsatisfiable, that's insatiable. You have an insatiable appetite and you try to pervert other people to have an insatiable appetite and it's not enough and you need more and it, what Hashem gives you is not sufficient and be unhappy and never be satisfied. Your punishment is that with all of your wandering, your eyes are going to wander from place to place and whatever you're going to taste and whatever gives people different pleasures and different hanos and different flavors and tastes, to you it's all going to be the same. You're going to be sick of it. Let the nochash, that whatever it eats, tastes the same. Come and punish those that sinned in the same manner. Let it punish those that eat the mon. That are able to eat one, one substance. And they're able to taste from it many flavors. You're not satisfied. Let me show you what the lesson is. The lesson is that of the nochash. You're, you're, you're given the glick of the mon. You're given the gift of the mon that although it's one substance, it contains multi-faceted tastes. Everything is contained in the mon. That's not enough for you. Let the nochash come and teach you the lesson of what it means to not have enough. To live in Gan Eden and to have every single tree but one. And the nochash says, no, even that tree you got to have. Hamin ho'eitz hazeh. You want to eat from this one tree that's forbidden. You have everything else, but it's not enough. And you have to have that one last tree. The Nochosh's punishment is, everything is going to taste like one. You want a hundred, you get zero. Let it come and teach the lesson of those that eat mon. Not the homon, but the mon. The mon is one substance, but it has every taste. The mon is the opposite of homon. Homon wants everything. Haman wants everything and more than that. When he has it all, he still wants the one thing he doesn't have. The man is just the opposite. It's one thing, but it contains it all. Haman has it all. He wants the one. The man is one, but it has it all. Let the Nochosh come, who was punished for trying to, to persuade Chava that everything that she has is not enough. And don't be satisfied and have more. And the Nochosh is therefore punished that whatever it has, has only one flavor. And let it punish those that are making the same sin again. That they want to eat, that they want more. That they have the one that has all the flavors, but it's still insufficient for them. That's on a second level. Furthermore, says the Rebbeinu They've seen serpents before. They saw snakes earlier. As it says in the Postalik, they passed through a wilderness that contained a great deal of serpents and snakes and scorpions. And not one Jew was ever injured by any of these serpents and scorpions. Because one of the Ananayakovid from the seven Ananayakovid that went before them exterminated and destroyed the serpents and caused them that it shouldn't bother them and it shouldn't harm them. These Jews were used to seeing snakes. They had 40 years of living with snakes. And it never injured them. But you want the Goyim. You want the Goyish alive. You want the apple that you haven't seen. 
You got to take the worm with the apple. You want to live like that construction worker and you want to look like that construction worker with a brawny tanned back walking around and without a shirt on and living in the sun and having the sun be down on his back. And you don't want this pale existence of the sheltered yeshiva boy who's living within the tents of Torah under the Anane covered, protected from the sun. No, you want the elements. You want that tanned look. You want that hale and hearty look. You want those broad shoulders and those pectoral muscles and that tan. Well, you got to take the sunburn that goes with it. Go sit out there in the sun and take the injuries, the ultraviolet rays. You want to be tanned in the sun. You got to take the wrinkles that come later from the sun. You want to sit in the sun on the beach. You got to take the skin cancer that goes with it. You want that juicy red apple you got to take the worm. You want to be able to eat and have to go to the bathroom. Then you got to take with it, you want the fiber and the bran and everything else. Then you got to take the serpents with it as well. You got to take the nechoshim. You want to go out there, you want to be out of the ananei akavod. You want to be, uh, you want to live like the goyim and eat and have a stocked refrigerator. Then nechoshim also bite. Nechoshim could injure. Serpents and scorpions could harm you. That's the lesson. You've seen all these serpents and scorpions, you've got to take the bad with the good. This Anon that used to protect them, that protected them from the snakes and the scorpions. In the 40th year, when they started being let down, and they started that reverse process of living a natural life, and, there wasn't, and they wanted to go into it wholeheartedly. They wanted to go into it at a full plunge. That which was a protection for them, they started looking at that they don't want it. And that which Hashem meant for their good, they saw as bad. They were mighty diba. They started saying bad things about that which was meant for their benefit. Things that Hashem created to be beneficial for them, they rebelled against, they revolted against. It repelled them, it repulsed them. If that's what it is, then you're going to get it the whole way. And therefore, Hashem sent the snakes and the scorpions and the serpents that bit them, these same self-same serpents that didn't bother them earlier and didn't damage them and injure them earlier. Now they're going to bite you and they're going to harm you because you take the bad with the good. And therefore, it was an appropriate punishment. So therefore, what we have is several levels. We have this serpent that, that goes back to the Nochash HaKadmoini because of the Lashon Hara because of this insatiable appetite. And also, if you don't want what Hashem is providing you, then you have to take the snake venom together with everything else. The worm goes along with the apple. You have to take the alar that they put on the apples together with the crunch of that apple. Therefore, when they wanted to do tshuva, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, contemplate, meditate on this sin that you have. Not only did you speak lush and horror, but you rebelled against this lifestyle. You wanted the snake. Look at that brass serpent. Be mishabi your lave shabashamayim and recognize what the sin is and contemplate and meditate on this and that's part of the tshuva. And each Jew had to do this tshuva when he was bitten by the poison of that snake. That Yetzirah that went into him, he had to do tshuva and realize that the bottom, the bottom of all of this, it's a snake. It's a snake in the grass that looks good, but ultimately bites you and it injures you and it harms you and kills you. And therefore the tshuva was in the chash ha 
says the Chassam Soifer very similar. He asks, why does it say Vatikzer Nefesh Ho'am Baderach Yeshlet Moya Mem Shono Ho'chuv Nistak Kubemon? Forty years they were satisfied with the Mon. Va'achshav B'Shoachron at the last minute we find Nikzer Nafsham they felt disgust and revulsion at the Mon. Hinei B'Tchilas Mem Shono B'Tayva we know that the first time that they sinned with the Mon, which was 40 years earlier, which is in Parshas Baloscha, we have to always remember that there's a symmetry over here. Parshas Chukas is on the way into Eretz Yisrael. It's on the way down. Parshas Baloscha is on the way up. Parshas Chukas is the 40th year. Parshas Baloscha is the first year. But the sins are the same, but in an opposite direction. And the responses have to be opposite. So let's go back to the first time that they rebelled against the Mon. That was on their way out of Egypt. What did they say? They said, We remember. We remember the fried fish and the barbecues we had and the, and the onions and the garlic and all of these things. Now what do we have? All we have is the mon. Literally it means we're totally dependent on the mon. We're totally dependent on the mon. But says the Chassam Seifer, what does it mean, Bilti El Hamon Einenu, that they had a taiva and Hisavu Taiva, and now they're complaining, Bilti El Hamon Einenu, our eyes? Says the Chsam Soifer Pirshu Chazal, Afa Pishoyabo called Mine Matamin. Even though the Mon contained within it all flavors, they didn't see it, they didn't have the visual impact. Gamki Toamutam Tapuach. They may have tasted an apple. But they didn't see that beautiful red apple. The crunch wasn't there. It's what I call always the cotton candy. You go over a marsh and ask you, what's cotton candy? And you tell them, well, it's made of sugar and it's fluffed up and everything else. She says, oh, it's sugar. So go give your child a spoonful of sugar. After all, when you take the cotton candy and you put it in your mouth, it all it does is it melts to a few sugar grains. That's all it becomes. You can stuff your mouth with cotton candy and it melts and dissolves into a few grains of sugar. That's what it starts from, that's what it ends. So give your kid a, cu a cup of sugar, a spoonful of sugar. No, no, it's not the same, because hey, it's fluffed up, it looks good, it's different, it's what we call ambiance. It's what we call the way it's presented. You go into a restaurant, and I remember when I went to a restaurant because of uh, to um, uh, anniversary or whatever it was, and they served you a a piece of schnitzel, that's what it looked like, some schnitzel with grass around it. That's all it looked like. It was a piece of schnitzel with like grass and leaves around it. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, you're paying $25, $30 for that. It doesn't really even taste any better than the schnitzel you have at home. But it's the ambiance of the restaurant. It's what you're paying for. That there's no kids screaming over there, and the lighting and the music. It's, it's the visual impact. And for that you're paying more. And everything in life is like that. It's the way it's presented and the way it looks. Go buy potato chips and, and you get a crushed bag full of potato chips. You buy Pringles and instead it fell down and all of the potato chips are now smashed. It mamish tastes the same. It even has the same crunch. But it's not a whole chip. It's little pieces. It's the potato chips on the bottom of the bag. Nobody likes the potato chips on the bottom of the bag. You could eat up the whole top of the bag of the potato chips with the big potato chips. You get to the bottom already, and it's already potato chip dust. That already doesn't taste good anymore. It doesn't look good, it doesn't taste good, it doesn't have the same crunch. It's the ambiance, it's the visual impact. That was the first sin. They remembered Mitzrayim. 
They came from all the barbecues. They already, they're the Balchuva generation. From its rhyme, they, they were the Balchuva generation. They lived the hale and hearty life of the construction worker. They know what it's like. They had a different kind of a taiva. They lived with the restaurants. And therefore they said, Yeah, it tastes like it, but it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like the real thing. They tasted apples, but they didn't see any apples. And Chazal tell us, A blind person doesn't feel satiated. If you eat in the pitch black dark, if you're eating at a restaurant, and they serve you all these fancy foods, and all of a sudden there's a blackout, and you're eating in the pitch black, you get a refund on your money. Because the whole tachlis of the restaurant was the presentation, the way it looks, the visual impact. Chazal tells us, a blind person doesn't feel the same level of satiation since he can't see the food. That's what it means. We're busy, we're stuck looking at the man, we don't see the apple. We only see man. It tastes like apple, but it looks like man. This was the early generation. But now we're talking 40 years later. They already died out. They never saw an apple. They don't know anything besides mon. In fact, it's a kash that we asked in the beginning. How are they able to even imagine any other flavor since they never tasted anything else but mon? Kasha, maybe somehow or other they're able to taste it. But they certainly never saw an apple. They never saw Shum Pri or Tzur of Shum Michael. Kim Hamon, Asher Tamu, Bokol Minei Tanugim. They were able to taste whatever they wanted. They didn't want anymore. They never wanted more. So for 39 years they never complained because they didn't know beyond the Mon. Now they started seeing civilization and they saw there's a Gansa Welt out there. They saw the Goyesha Welt. And they started seeing what food could look like and how it could be presented. And all the taivas that the Goyim have, you read about it, you see it, you see it on television and you hear about it and it incites. It incites. A person that's, that, that lives in America and he's about Shuvah and he went to the tray for restaurants, he's like the first generation out of Egypt. He knows what the restaurants and what the tray for things are all about. And he has to pull himself away from that. He has a withdrawal. But now you have the children, the next generation, that are brought up in Eretz Yisrael and Meisharim. And what do they know from food? What do you eat for breakfast? You don't have a whole bunch of cereals laid out in a supermarket. What you wind up eating is eat some leaven, some vegetables, and some bread. All of a sudden you come back to America and your father-in-law says, look what you've been missing all these years. We opened up half a dozen kosher restaurants, Chinese and Italian and Delhi and Schwarman and Greek and whatever it is. Look at this Goyesha Welt out there. Now they started getting a taiva. Once they entered civilization, Amoin and Moyov, in the 40th year, they saw the Tzuras Paris in the Machol and they started to complain based on what they saw. And we could add to this as well the fact that Hashem was trying to now bring them down, but there was a difficult lesson to integrate into their lives. Their punishment was in the Choshim. Forty years they saw serpents and scorpions in the Choshim and they weren't damaged by them. And they didn't realize that serpents could harm you and serpents could injure you and the venom is poisonous. Now they learned a new lesson as well. 
that the serpents and scorpions, you want this kind of Goyesh alive, the serpents and scorpions are also Mazikim. Just like they learned the new lesson of what fruit looks like. When they saw the new Tzur of the Paris and they had a desire for that. They could learn now the new lesson of the serpents and scorpions that they could injure you and damage you and you won't get healed. How? How do you get healed? Let the visual impact of the, and the contemplation let it be mechaper on their sin which was one of vision and sight. The truth is this goes much deeper. The Balaturim says that when Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people Can we bring forth water out of this rock? Says the Balaturim, there are three places where the word Hamin is used. Hamin ho'eitz hazeh from this tree by the sin of the Eitz Hadas. Here Hamin hasela and the third place is in Novi Hamin ha'goyrin omin ha'yekev which refers to the granary and the winery. There's a machloikis if the tree of the Eitz Hadas was a wheat tree, chita, or was a grape tree, wine. That's goyrin and yekev that refers to both things. And that fits in with the Hamin Ho'eitz, Hamin Ha'goyrin Omin Ha'yekev. The Balaturim doesn't explain the connection to Hamin Ha'sela and Hamin Ho'eitz. The truth is, it's interesting, the gematria of Hamin Ha'sela and Hamin Ho'eitz are exactly the same. Hamin Ho'eitz and Hamin Ha'sela have the exact same gematria. Ha'sela and Ho'eitz, or for that matter, Sela and Eitz, is the same gematria. And here, therefore, the expression is used Sela rather than Sur. Says the Ksav Seifer, Moshe Rabbeinu says that to them, Hamin It's against nature to take, to take stone and to take water out of a stone. But the Teretz is that the Teva is Meshubah to a person from the beginning of creation. Only as a result of the Chet of Odom Arishan was he punished with Koitz Bedar Dar Tatzmiach Is only because of that is the Parnasa difficult. If a person would do the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then, then his parnosa wouldn't be any problem. Only because of sin do you have the problem that not only does can't you take water out of stone, but you can't even get bread out of earth. What you get is Parnosa is a struggle. The same way that they had to fight with Amolek Beteva. Was a go out, go out of the and do battle with Amolek. Likewise, Parnosa is a struggle. The with the sweat of your brow. The word lechem is milchoma. It's a war. It's a battle. It's a battle for Parnosa. And instead, what do you get? You get koitz v'dardar, milchoma Amolek dor dor. Chazal Mufarshim say, Dor, Dor, Dar, Dar is the same thing. It's an everlasting battle with Amolek. It's a battle with the Teva, but you have to believe in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. B'zeyas apecho toichalechem v'koitz v'dar, Dar, Tatzmiach loch. Koitz v'dar, Dar, Milchom Amolek, Dor, Dor. It's a Teva, it's a war in Teva, it's a struggle, but you have to believe in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If a person does, then you could take water out of stone. The Jewish people didn't see water. They had a spigot that they had to put into a rack, and that's how they got water. That's how they got their water. 
Moshe Rabbeinu says, Hamin Could we take water out of a rock? But if you do the will of Hashem, you can. Because the Teva is Meshubah to the human being. The opposite of Hamin Ho'etz. If you sin with Hamin Ho'etz, Hazeh, then you get Koytz Vedarda, you can't even bring bread out of the ground. To be Moitzi Lechem in the arts is difficult. If you do the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then Hamin Hasela Hazeh, you could even get water from a stone. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu was trying to tell them. What was the chait of the Eitz Hadas? The chait of the Eitz Hadas was the same chait that they had over here by the, by the Mon, where they complained about the Mon being Lechem HaKloikel, being too spiritualized. They wanted visual bread. What was the chait from the Eitz Hadas? Vatere Ho'isha, she saw Kitoivo Eitz Lomachol, V'chisavo Hu It was desirable visually. V'nechmod Ho'etz Lahaskil, it was a desirable tree. There was a visual impact over there. Says the Beis Halevi, there was a Yetzir Horror before the Eitz of the Eitz Hadas. What happened was that they enhanced the Yetzir Horror. This Yetzir Horror that we have, where it's blown up out of proportion, where the Yetzir Horror becomes like cotton candy, much more than it deserves. That's what happened with the Eitz Hadas. That was the, the Yetzir Horror that came to us after the Eitz Hadas. Before, everything was in perspective. Yes, steak tasted good, but we didn't go crazy for it. We didn't go sugar for the Taivas. But now this whole visual impact and the fact that you have a Taiva much greater than the pleasure of the, of the sin itself. That's what happened by the Eitz Hadas. That's what they wanted over here. It was no longer enough to eat apples. They wanted to see the apples. They wanted the whole ambiance, the whole visual impact. And what was the punishment from the Eitz Hadas? The struggle with Parnosa. The Koitz Vidardar. The Melchoma Bezeas Apechot Lechem. But you have to have faith in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You have to have faith in HaKadosh Baruch Hu that even with Teva, He's going to do it. Now that Klal Yisrael was being let down into Eretz Yisrael, where they have to integrate into their lives, their Amun and Hashem, and their own Hishtadlus. This combination was very difficult. It was the same combination as the Melchom with Amolek. That's why Chazal put the two together, Yod of Shalmoshe with the Melchom and Amolek, and in the Chashan Choshes. And therefore, the Rebbein Shalom said, Tshuva and Vidu isn't enough. Moshe Rabbeinu's intercession isn't enough. Contemplate this lesson. Remember, look up at that Nechash HaNechoshes and realize that your chait goes back to the original Hamin Ho'etz, to the original Nochosh HaKadmoni. V'chi Nochosh mei miso mechayel b'zman she'isrol m'staken klapei maylo. They had to look to heaven u'mishabdin libon l'viyem shabash maim. They had to have a munan bitochen Hashem that he could help them and to get away from the chait of the Nochosh HaKadmoni. They had to contemplate the Nochosh HaKadmoni, the original cause for sin, and then HaKadosh Baruch who helped them. It was no longer Moshe Rabbeinu's intercession that was going to do it. They're on their own. And each individual has to learn this lesson. It's the same lesson as the Melchama with Amalek. It's the same lesson with the Nechash HaNechoshes. It's the struggle, the Melchama of Amalek, which is Beteva, and the Melchama with Lechem, which is, which is also Beteva. You have to have Emunah Bitochem HaKadosh Baruch even in the Yonei Teva, even in the Melchom of the Hamaytzi Lechem in Haaretz, to take bread out of the ground, it's a Melchom Amolek Dor Dor, the Koitz V'dardar Tatzmiach Loch, V'zeyas Apecho Toicha Lechem, Tzei V'hilochem Im Hamolek. Going back to the Chet of Eitz Hadas, of the visual enhancement of the Eitz Zohar, as well as the Yon of Bitochem in the Yonei Teva.